so so today we're going to be in Matthew 28. If you have a device or um, you've got an actual physical Bible, I invite you guys to turn there. And um, we're going to look at Matthew 28 verses 1 through 10 this morning. So in my history as, as a parent, uh, there have been plenty of occasions in my parenting experience when I've noticed my kids glossing over during my explanation of something. Or, or there have been times when, as I'm explaining something to them, they'll kind of cut me off mid-sentence and they'll say, okay, okay, I know. And as they do this, we, we press, we've tried to press into this at times and, and to ask them what, why they think they know what, what we're saying. Uh, and, and what we've learned from my kids is that um, they think that they know what, what we are going to say or what I'm going to say to them. And, and so what I'll oftentimes do is I'll ask them to recount what, what it was that I was going to say to them so, so that I can understand, I, I can get a gauge. Do, do they really know what I was about to say? Are they tracking with me here? And on a few occasions, they've guessed correctly. Uh, but what I've found is I've asked them this question on many occasions is that, that they're not really tracking, that, that they've missed the mark. It kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Michael from The Office and, and this, I think, well-known quote for those who follow uh, The Office. Uh, when he says, I knew exactly what to do, but in a much more, more real sense, I had no idea what to do. Uh, and I, I found that to be the case with my kids as well, what, what they are doing is they assume they know what I will say. They're making an assumption, and, but they're living on the surface here. When it gets right down to it, they, they can say, I know what you're going to say, but when it gets right down to it, they oftentimes can't communicate the point that I was trying to communicate to them. Now, if we have experience in the church. We, if we grew up in the church, uh, we have ex experience in the Bible. Uh, we can tend to do the same thing with the Bible, especially with stories like today, like the Easter story. We oftentimes are preaching the same text year after year. We're rehearsing the same story repeatedly. And, and so I think when we come to these times throughout the year, maybe Easter and, and Christmas, it's easy for us to kind of just go on autopilot. Even if we might find ourselves sitting down and reading these stories that at times we, we can just let our mind wander and just kind of read over the story. And so this week, uh, what I did as I was reading some of the Easter stories is I just, I just tried to sit in the verses that we're looking at today and, and some other chunks of verses as well. And, and just to read them and to reread them making observations, letting the story be told to me afresh. And, and as I did this, I was reminded of the dynamic nature and multi-layered reality of the Bible, that, that there's so much more there than we oftentimes see on the surface. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at these 10 verses and, and try to go below the surface a little bit and, and explore a little bit more of what's going on uh, around 
the story of Jesus' resurrection, of, of the story of the tomb being empty. So let's read these 10 verses, and uh, then we'll, we'll look a little bit more closely at them. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. All right, so first off, what we find here in these verses is we read of a couple of Jesus followers are going to his tomb. They were going to his tomb to mourn. And so I want to point out that it was their sadness and their grief that brought them to Jesus. So we should not skip over this detail in our reading. As we encounter hardship in our lives, as we're walking through a season that might be really difficult or filled with grief or sadness for many of us, the place for us to go is to Jesus. And we're going to see in a bit validation as to why we go to him. But for now, I just want to point out, this is where we need to go. Jesus is the person that we need to go. So the women come to the tomb, but what they find there is maybe not what they expected at all. First of all, the, the stone has been rolled back, but, but what also what they find there is an earthquake. Now, earthquakes were not a common occurrence in this part of the world then or now. But at that time, this was the second major earthquake in the span of just a couple of days. Now, these details aren't included in the story for no reason whatsoever. If you know earthquakes in the Bible, they typically are going to signify divine judgment. Earthquakes are oftentimes the result of God's anger towards sin, or it indicates that someone or something is being judged. So we have to ask ourselves the question here, what is being judged here? Or, or who is being judged here as this earthquake is taking place? In this instance, it is death that is being judged. Death is an inescapable reality in this world. It awaits all of us. Many of us are terrified of death itself. In fact, industries have been built to stave off death, to just make, uh, to allow us to live a little bit longer so that we don't have to die quite yet. Or, or there's 
been other industries that have been created to just distract us from the idea of death. So we don't have to stop like we have in, in these days now and, and think about the weighty parts of life. But what we find here in Jesus' resurrection is that he is saying with Paul, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, he's saying, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The, the reality of what's happening at, at the open tomb is, is that the fear of death has been exposed. Death is not as daunting as it once was thought. Now, now we would all say that death is a certainty for us. That's been proven over and over throughout the history of the world. Death is a certainty for us. But Jesus is saying that there is something more certain. There is something more victorious. There is something more powerful than death. And that is Jesus himself. Jesus is saying, death, you used to be something, but now you are nothing. Even though we might die, we yet shall live. And so in, in all of this, we're hearing this message that we mustn't fear. We mustn't fear death. All right, so, so the earthquake has these other realities that it's communicating beyond just an earthquake taking place. But we also hear a bit about this angel. It says in verse 2 that the angel came from heaven and rolled back the stone and he sat on the stone. Now elsewhere we read of Jesus sitting down at his father's right hand. And this suggests that his work is finished. So as we see the angel sitting here at Jesus' tomb, even in this detail, there is a sense of finality that's being communicated through the open tomb of Jesus. And then verse 4, uh, it, it then mentions these guards who were guarding Jesus' tomb, that they trembled in fear and became like dead men upon seeing the angel. So all I want to do right now is I want to highlight this response, the, the response of these guards, but we're going to come back to their terrified response in just a moment. Now, the angel doesn't have a lot to say in these verses but the words that are recorded are done so with intention. So I want to look closely at what is being said by the angel. He begins in verse 5, speaking to the women who are visiting the tomb. And he says there, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. In one sense, this is not a remarkable statement by the angel. Because if you look throughout the sweep of the Bible, what you'll find is that this phrase is uttered, or, or similar phrases like fear not, are uttered throughout the Bible, on repeat. So that's a consistent phrase that we find in the Bible. So in, in that sense, it's not that remarkable. But in other senses, it is remarkable. And I want to highlight a few reasons in just a moment. But first, I want to comment on the pattern here. Because the angel says... Do not be afraid to these women. First words to them. But if we, were to, if we were to drop down to verse 10, when the women also encounter Jesus, notice the first thing that Jesus says to the women there. And it is, do not be 
afraid. So this is not just the angel on his own agenda. This comes straight from Jesus. This is God's heart that we not be afraid, that we be free from fear. God's heart here is addressing the human heart, the human heart that has shown itself to be afraid over and over throughout history. We go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 3, and we find Adam and Eve there. Uh, they sought a greater form of freedom outside of what God had given to them. So, so God gave them instructions in the Garden of Eden and said, this is what you need to do, this is what you are to do, and this is what you are not to do. But they listened to the lies of Satan, and then they sought a greater form of freedom. And, and so they sinned against God, and, and their disobedience was sin against God, and it was their sin that then led them to be scared of God. And so after this, God comes to the garden and he's looking for Adam and Eve. And what he finds Adam and Eve doing is hiding from God. They were scared of him. Their sin had separated them from God and they were terrified of him. And since then, it has become typical for God to terrify us because of our sin. And, and we think of these soldiers, right? When they are encountering this divine reality of the angel, they are filled with fear. They become like dead men because they're scared upon encountering God. Now, I want to I wanna just remark a few reasons as to why it is remarkable that the angel is saying, do not be afraid. So first of all, this phrase is conveying an understanding of what is being felt by these women. So Jesus' followers had seen their leader, their savior, brutally killed. And, and this had created immense uncertainty for them. So, so they'd seen their leader, their savior killed. They put all their chips in on Jesus. And then they'd gone through the next day and probably filled with grief on Saturday and, and just wondering what has gone on here. Then the, the presence of the angel being at the tomb, they're walking up to this tomb. The tomb has been opened. The angel is there sitting on the rock. They see these guards who are looking like dead men. There is much fear within these women. And this angel who is sent by God, not God himself, but he's sent by God to deliver the message that God wants to be delivered, is concerned with and for God's people. Secondly, uh, this phrase communicates a divine desire that we not stay in our fear, that we not be captivated by fear. No one likes fear at least I haven't found the person who enjoys feeling fear. It's, it's not enjoyable. Last Sunday, after we had gathered together as a community, uh, our family was spending some time outside. And uh, we were doing a number of things in the yard. And one of the things that we were doing is uh, we, we had had a big branch fall down. And 
So we were, we had a bunch of wood in our fire pit. And so we were just trying to burn some of that down. And, and so we had a big fire. We were throwing uh, more sticks on the fire and uh, I threw one log on the fire and I noticed this little twig um, fall out on the, the fire pit floor, which isn't a big deal. And so I didn't think anything of it, but then I looked just beyond it and I noticed another stick that had fallen into uh, like underneath our wooden benches there. And I looked at it for a moment and then I realized there's fire spreading quickly. There was a bunch of dry leaves under there and it just started spreading really quickly. And so I went over there and I was trying to stamp it out. I could not get it. It just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I noticed it's lapping up against the white fence of our neighbor's, uh, our neighbor's white fence right there. And then I hear from a neighbor across the, the yard, Kevin, are you okay? And I, I said, uh, we'll see, because uh, I didn't know. And, and in that moment, I felt some fear. The thought went through my head, am I going to burn the neighborhood down right now? And, and I did not enjoy what I was feeling in that moment. And, and thankfully, it did not persist. Uh, but there's this reality that, that when we feel fear, God desires freedom for us. He doesn't desire that we would be enslaved by our fear. And so even in this, even in this phrase, as the angel is saying, do not be afraid, we should be able to acknowledge that this is grace. And this is who God is. He is a grace extending God. And, and even in this phrase, the angel is conveying the idea of grace to, to the women who are there, but also to us who are reading this story many years later. All right, and then third, it's directing a reality that's, that's possible. So, so the gospel, what it does is it moves us from fear to freedom, from death to life. And so um, it's, it's conveying kind of this divine understanding. God desires that we not stay in our fear, but, but then it moves us. It, it's not just this nice idea. It, it provides us what we need to move out of fear as well. So we, we needn't be anxious and fearful because God provides us what we need to move from fear to freedom. But if we're honest, we all feel fear in a variety of ways. We feel fear about unknowns that we encounter in life, about something going wrong in life. We fear things being taken away from us that we really enjoy, things that we really love. We fear dying. We fear God at times. We fear judgment. We fear losing our health. And, and even though we maybe have heard this story many times, and we've heard that we don't need to be fearful, fear is still typical. The world that we live in is wrecked by sin, and sin leads us to be scared of many things, and our sin causes us to fear God even. And so I just want to stop for a moment. I want to ask you the question, what is it that you fear? What are you fearing today? Or if you look back over your life, 
what's been a consistent fear that's popped up and still pops up for you? Part of the reason I ask this question is because it helps us to diagnose how we're not believing in Jesus. Because knowing God and knowing his love for us can substantially drive out fear. So, so this is why it's so important. As we talk about community, as, it, as we talk about the importance of gathering together, being in each other's lives, we need to gospel one another. We need to share the good news of what we're celebrating today with one another over and over because it has practical ramifications for our everyday living. This is why we need to continually remind one another that Jesus won a decisive victory over death on the cross. The gospel is God's invitation to us to live unafraid because Jesus is greater. Whatever it is that we're looking at, whatever it is that we're scared of, whatever it is that incites fear in us, Jesus is greater. He has conquered that thing. So where death reigns, Jesus brings life. Where judgment is deserved, grace is given. We need to hear the gospel from one another on repeat. We can never underestimate this reality. We need to hear it. We need to hear good news. And the reason we can't under, underestimate it, I think, is even proven here in what's going on in these verses. Because of what we find the angel saying next. He then says, Jesus is not here. He has risen. So the angel has good news. But the angel doesn't just have good news. This angel is sharing the good news with these women who are in need of it. This is what we do with good news. This is what we heard in the, the children's story at the beginning of the service, right? When we have good news, it needs to be shared. Others need to hear. We need to hear that good news. Good news finds its completion in sharing it with others. It upholds us. It encourages us. It uplifts us. It bolsters our faith. We need to hear the good news of the gospel over and over. But notice this. After the angel gives grace, as he says, don't be afraid. And after the angel speaks good news by saying, he has risen, what he then does is he provides the evidence or the basis for this grace and for this good news. Look at this. What he says in verse 6, he says, Come, see the place where he lay. The angel is giving the proof for why we need not be afraid. This, this is the genesis of the good news that he is speaking. I love the evidentiary nature of this. This is not merely a fairy tale, okay, that, I'm sure many of us have watched our share of Disney Plus in the last number of weeks, at least for those of us who have uh, this app, right? Th this is not a fairy tale. This is not some story that we make up whatever happy ending that we want. This is not make-believe. This is history. This is theology. 
This happened. An angel actually rolled the rock away, and these women saw the empty tomb, and they were convinced by this reality. This has happened. It's real. It's news that has occurred and news that is intended to be shared with others, news that is intended to shape every part of our lives. So upon all of this transpiring, the angel told the women to go and to tell Jesus' disciples that he had risen. They, they could then see him in Galilee. So the women left quickly to go on this trip and to see Jesus, which is what would happen. And then there's this little throwaway phrase in verse 7. As it says, Jesus is going before you. And I think this phrase really speaks to the character of Jesus. So in this verse, this was speaking of Jesus leading the way to Galilee. But we understand this statement, and we can believe this statement, because it's based on Jesus going before us into death. So yeah, maybe Jesus goes before us to a city, and maybe we don't think that's that big of a deal. But this statement is based on the fact that Jesus has gone before us to the places that we're most scared of, death itself. We can also say Jesus has gone before us into suffering. Jesus has gone before us into betrayal, into rejection, into loneliness, into mockery. Even think about this would apply to the circumstances of, of those families, the many families that we have in our community right now who are about to walk uh, through pregnancy and, and birthing of a child. Right, right? It even speaks, it applies to the adverse circumstances surrounding the birth of a child. Jesus goes before us. He goes before us. Whatever we might be fearful of walking into today, or tomorrow, or in the next year, Jesus has walked into something like that. And the beautiful reality is Jesus doesn't just walk before us. He then promises to walk with us as well. He promises to never leave us, promises never to forsake us. He will be with us in the midst of whatever it is that strikes fear in our hearts. This is why we should trust Jesus. The Bible is replete with examples of why we should trust, trust him, why we should go to him. And the reality is we should trust him because he's been there. He's gone wherever it is that we're going to go. We should also trust him because he cares. He cares to the point that he went to a cross and he would suffer, he would be betrayed, and he would ultimately experience death for us. This is demonstrating his care for us. So he's gone before us. He cares for us, and he's conquered. Whatever it is that we're fearful of, he's greater. He went into death itself, and he walked out conquering the grave. There is nothing that can stop him, nothing that can contain him, nothing that can ultimately defeat him. Jesus is better. This is the subtitle of the Hebrew series that we're walking through right now. Jesus is 
better. He is better. And we need to hear this, be reminded of this reality over and over. Even when we think we get it, that we understand it, there are ways in which we don't fully believe that he is better. So when I asked you just a little bit ago, what are you fearful of? What are you scared by? What creates anxiety for you? Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is stronger. He will overcome. He will provide you what you need. He is faithful. All right. Then verse 8 records that the women left the empty tomb with great fear and joy. Fear and great joy. So this, this phrase struck me this week. We tend to view these ideas as mutually exclusive, right? So there's this idea of fear, and then there's this idea of great joy. We can experience joy when fear is absent, but fear typically will drive out joy. But these women, they are feeling both emotions simultaneously. Now, it's hard to know the type of fear spoken of here. Is it an awe-filled fear or is it a terrifying fear? Now, I, I tend to think that it's, it's much more, if not only, the awe-filled fear. Because I've not experienced a lot of circumstances where I've had kind of the terrifying fear mixed with great joy. I tried to think this week, like when have I, when have I experienced terrifying fear and great joy? Maybe uh, at the birth of my kids uh, would be one of those times. I also thought of uh, back in my younger days when I, would, when I would cliff jump from like 50, 60 feet. Um, like I, I think maybe I felt some of that in that moment. But I think when we look at these women here, both senses of fear would make sense for them. This awe-filled, they're seeing this angel, this earthquake, that there's this reality like, oh, this is God, and we're encountering him. So there's that, but there's also, it could be this terrifying reality because of the earthquake itself, because of what they see in these soldiers who become like dead men. Either way, either way, the only being that can simultaneously strike fear in us while also filling us with great joy is God himself. And I think part of what's being communicated here, not, not I think, I know part of what's being communicated here is the idea that true freedom allows us to laugh in the face of fear. True freedom allows us to laugh in the face of fear. Now, when we think of freedom, what we oftentimes think about is that freedom is us being able to choose whatever we want, right? We've got the options and we can do whatever we want. That is what we oftentimes think freedom is. Now, I don't think that's what true freedom is. Real freedom results in a deep-seated confidence that Jesus will provide us everything that we need, no matter the situation, 
And, and because of this reality that he'll provide us what we need in every and any situation, that means that there's nothing then to fear. That's what true freedom is. And, and I think this is why James 1-2 says this. It says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So I think we oftentimes look at trials in our lives and we say, well, that, that enslaves me. That, that's not a good thing. And I don't think any of us would look at hard trials and say, I want that. I would choose that. That, that might be a, just sickening in itself. But the reality is, oftentimes when we get to the other side of the trial, is that we can acknowledge that the trials themselves are intended to set us free, that, that God will take those trials, even when they result from sin and from evil circumstances, that God will take those trials and he will work for our good to the point that he desires to set us free through the trials, that he will even take evil, wicked things and he will use them in such a way that he will set us free. And in this, he will increase our joy. And so in those moments when fear seeks to stifle or to steal our great joy, we need to remember the open tomb and we need to face up the fear and we need to laugh in its face, trusting, believing that Jesus has promised that he will bring about true freedom when we trust in him. Not trust in fixing our circumstances, not trust in us getting whatever it is, maybe our sinful heart desires in the moment, but for us to trust in him, to cling to him, to entrust ourselves completely, knowing that whatever he has for us, he will work good for those who love him. Now, on this day, when we're thinking about Jesus' resurrection, we're, we're talking about this facet of Christianity that is central to the whole story. So we're, we talk about the resurrection. Uh, we talk about what it affords us. We talk about all these good things. But there's a real danger for us when we think about Jesus' res resurrection if we just think about Jesus' resurrection as something that's out there, all right, something that's almost removed from us. Because Jesus didn't raise from the dead so that we can merely talk about being free. Yet, he wants us to talk about being free, for sure, but not stop there. See, Jesus rose from the dead to set us free. And then after we've been set free, he wants us to talk about it. But we can't view this as something that's just out there. It's, it's not something that we just talk about. He, his desire is that this would be our lived experience. He rose so that we would not fall prey to fear. So that when fear comes, and it will come for all of us, we can know that Jesus is greater. He has conquered whatever it is that we are prone to be scared of. All of this happened, not so that we can talk about his resurrection, not so that we can just celebrate the fact that he has risen, but so that it would take hold of us. 
it would change who we are, the way that we think. So his resurrection has occurred so that we would believe in it, cling to it, make it part of us, that it would be the primary shaper of our lives. So it's not just knowing what to say or do. Think, think of Michael from the office on that slide earlier on, right? It, it's not just knowing what to say or do. It's not just knowing Bible verses or facts. The point is that we believe in Jesus' resurrection to the extent that we internalize it completely and it changes us. It moves us from people who are spiritually dead to people who are spiritually alive. It has practical ramifications for our everyday lives. When we're scared to, to engage in conflict resolution with someone, we can do that trusting in Jesus' love for us. Whether the, the conflict resolution works to the degree that we want or not, we can know that Jesus has resolved our greatest conflict by coming to us by suffering, by dying for our sins. So the point in all of this is that we understand that the gospel is the greatest news in the world. It is the greatest news in the world and that it would change us. We don't just talk about it. We just don't look at it off in the distance. It changes us, every part of who we are. All right, lastly, we need to see ourselves as the Marys approaching the tomb. Like them, we may be torn up by life. We may have lots of questions that we would like answered by God. Life might feel really chaotic and uncertain for us. And, and if it doesn't for us today, it will on another day. So coming to Jesus may create an array of emotions for us. But wherever we're at, Whoever we are, whatever we're feeling, whatever questions are still left unanswered, whatever mess is still part of our lives, if we are a Christian, Jesus tells us to go and tell. To go and tell. This is what our lives are to be about. To share the good news of the gospel so that others can hear and see the good news of Jesus, so that others can be set free, so that others who are enslaved and paralyzed by fear can be set free and know the joy that's found in and through Jesus. And what the going and telling might look like these days maybe is a lot different than it was six weeks ago. And maybe the going and telling is not happening in the way that it, it needs to happen. And and maybe we should just feel some of the, the disconnect of that. The gospel is the greatest news in the world. It is news that is intended to be shared with others, not to just be held to ourselves. And so when it's not shared, it's not completed. Our joy is intended to be shared with others so that they might know and experience our joy as well. And so this is the hope of the resurrection. It's the greatest news in the world. And it is news that is intended to be shared. So wherever we're at this morning, the call for us is to believe in it increasingly. And if, if you are not a Christian, 
If you've never entrusted yourself, clung to Jesus completely with your life, then this is an invitation for you. This, this is a clear call for you that Jesus died for your sin and he rose from the grave for you. He loves you this much that he went to death so that you might be saved from God's wrath and from hell. And this is reason to celebrate. Whether you've never believed in it or you're believing in it for the 4,000th time, we have many reasons, endless reasons, unceasing reasons to rejoice together as God's people. All right, we're, we're going to take a few moments to respond to the good news of the gospel through worship, uh, in, through music. And so I invite you guys uh, in your homes, uh, if you want to gather your kids and um, you want to sing together, this is a great opportunity for us to just sing out the goodness of the gospel, uh, to declare what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So we're going to take a a few moments to do this together.